The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. He said that wherever I podcast, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Ooh, you're just going to cut out my creepy sound, but I don't even care. <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll just silence it. That might be more appropriate for this episode. I feel like that's fair. We are very excited, though, for this episode because we're seeing a movie that recently came out, The Invisible Man. Where are you? Show yourself! Surprise. Probably the first like truly notable horror film of the year. Um, I mean, maybe Gertel and Hansel. I don't know. I didn't see mm-hmm. that one. You did. No, nope, um, nope. This one blows it out of the water. Blows Gretel into a million pieces. Sorry, not sorry. I was glad that you know finally we have a, a horror film that's actually gaining some traction and isn't just getting eye rolls from critics and and horror fans alike. So yeah, this is The Invisible Man, brought to us by Lee Winnell, uh, who both wrote and directed it of course lee winnell is the was at least for a long time creative partner of james wan and has kind of recently kind of branched off and into doing uh, some directing work and stuff himself second movie he's directed i don't know let me see now i'm curious (laughs) sorry i I immediately go down the rabbit hole (laughs) as we often do on this podcast oh no the third movie he directed before we get too into the movie, though, Nathaniel, being your literary master that you are, do you maybe want to give our listeners some context of where The Invisible Man comes from? I know you're going to talk about the story in Studying the Strange, but I think it will help our dialogue if we if we know a little bit about who The Invisible Man is. Well, heck, let's just do Studying the Strange up, up front. I'm into that. Okay, so today in Studying the Strange, we explore the 1897 science fiction novel by H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man. Okay, so The Invisible Man is, it was originally a serial story uh, that was published basically about a scientist named Griffin, who is all about optics, you know, he's all about trying to make sense of, of the light spectrum and refractive indexes and all sorts of stuff. And so basically he wants to make it so uh, he can become invisible. He successfully carries this out, but he cannot reverse it. Uh, and so kind of we, as far as the story goes, you know, we kind of start out by seeing this dude, uh, you know, Griffin, uh, who is all like bandaged up. He's, you know, wearing like thick, gloves uh thick coat he's you know just kind of hiding anywhere that he would have uh, skin he's just basically at this inn in the middle of nowhere um in sussex uh and it's just like basically saying hey i i i'm just gonna be doing some sciencey stuff in my room leave me alone just you know kind of bring me food don't even bother about cleaning my room just like i don't want to be bugged by anybody um, people, of course, in the town are immediately interested in him because there's nothing else going on. Uh, and then suddenly, like, a mysterious burglary occurs. Uh, he's, you know, trying to, or he's, he's trying to, like, find a way to continue to fuel his research in terms of, you know, getting rid of this 
invisibility curse that he has put in uh put on himself by some sort of chemical process like it, it, it's pretty obvious that he's doing all these crimes and stuff like the book isn't really subtle about that i think you're supposed to not know right away but it's obvious that he's going around he's basically stripping naked running around invisible stealing stuff things go on you know he very quickly commits his first murder uh you know he beats someone over the head with a pipe he then after that gets a uh, an assistant uh thomas marvel who i believe is the invisible man character in league of extraordinary gentlemen but yeah so basically he is having him help him with all of his experiments but marvel then tries to betray griffin to the police and it Marvel ends up getting, like, saved by people at the end, but Griffin tries to kill him. He then tells the police about, you know, what's going on with this invisible man. Griffin hiding with, uh, like, a doctor he used to know. He explains how, how he turned himself invisible. And basically is like, hey, well, since I can't reverse this invisibility, I want to create this, like, reign of terror where I'm going to just, yeah, try to, like, basically control all of England by... Being, by doing creepy stuff as the Invisible Man. But hit, the doctor also immediately betrays him, tells the police. He tries to kill the doctor. Griffin then is like, sh- like shoots a Scotland Yard inspector. Like like a, a mob is, uh, is formed. They, they end up cornering him and beating him to death. And he as he dies, he becomes visible. And then it, in the epilogue, it, you find out that Marble, that first assistant, has all of his notes and stuff, but doesn't, but lacks the know-how in terms of actually using it to turn himself invisible. The end. It's one of those things where I, I feel like it's it's a really cool idea. Like, someone who is, like, really not that good of a person uh, is the one, you know, who is this invisible man. You know, Griffin really doesn't have much morality in terms of how society would like to define it. You know, he's he's really all about being very self-serving, all that. So it makes him a really great villain. But the problem with this book, uh, and, you know, the, the problem, at least that I have with it, is that the story is good, but the writing is not. I've never liked H.G. Wells' writing style. I don't think it has any subtlety. It's boring. He's just not not great, in my opinion. So... So yeah, that's uh, that's the Invisible Man. Um, the Invisible Man 2020 is, of course, not an original movie. The Invisible Man has been around for a while. Yeah, um, I do know though that this was Universal Studios' attempt to try and recreate this weird, dark universe. I don't know if you remember, but there was that movie in 2017, The Mummy, that was just atro- yes. atrocious and bad. <laughs> and so I think they've kind of decided that creating this universe is not a good idea because this had absolutely nothing to do with The Mummy at all. That came out a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. To my to my understanding, what they did is yeah, they tried to create that dark universe with the mummy. They just made a uh, it was just a bad attempt. Nobody liked it. They immediately scrapped the idea. I mean, like they had it all planned out, but yeah, they they burned that all down. And then, you know, I think they were approached by like James Wan and Lee Whannell and, and you know the kind of that sort of creative. Or, and, and just some other people, you know, with, like, Bloomhouse and stuff like that. And they're like, hey, what if we made one of your classic Universal monsters, but, you know, kind of updated it. And, and yeah, didn't make it so it's, it has to be part of this big universe, but rather we just make a standalone and see what happens. Um, and so that's what happened with The Invisible Man. So, you know, obviously it's a very different take than the original film. The original film followed the book pretty closely. But now there has been... Universal is, is saying, okay, yeah, we're going to do this again, but we're going to kind of put these guys at the helm of it. So that way there's not issues uh, like like we had before. Like we mentioned, this movie is really good. Um, to give our listeners just a little bit of context again, movie is about Cecilia. She is in a very abusive relationship. And when I say abusive, I mean abusive. The person she's in the relationship with is a man named Adrian Griffin. She's able to escape him, but then she's convinced 
that after his untimely suicide, his ghost, quote unquote, is haunting her. She starts to feel his presence nearby. She has a lot of weird poltergeist-like activities following her. And for a good part of the movie, you don't really know what is going on. Of course, it is a, a person who's using some technology to stay invisible. But again, you really don't know for a good portion of the movie if she is just a little bit mentally unstable because of the abuse that she's been put through, or if there is someone chasing her. Um, so Nathaniel, how about we dive into some of the, the pros of the movie, the stuff that we really liked? The first thing is just that opening scene of the movie. It is oh, yeah. killer. Heroin. Uh, it's just... Yeah, what what makes it so great, I think, is that, you know, we start out, we don't have any context, we just see this woman in this house, and she's, like, being super stealthy, and she's, like, pulling a bag out of this, like, hidden thing in the wall, and she's pointing cameras in different places, and she's going, and she's deactivating stuff, and she's being as quiet as she can, and, and like, you're like, okay, she's trying to escape, but you don't really know why exactly yet, and you don't, but the fact that she has to go through all of these very over-the-top steps, you know, piece by piece by piece, it just builds the tension and builds the tension until you're just like, what's going to happen? And I think that intensity of the opening scenes does two things. I think, one, it really sets the mood for the rest of the movie. Um, for me, this was one of the most gritty and horrific part of the entire show. Um being someone who's made the active decision to leave their partner, I connected a lot with the intensity of what was going on here. Um, I was not anywhere near what poor Cecilia was going through, but that decision to break your life in such a drastic way, you could feel the horror almost pulsating from these opening scenes. Um, it was fantastic. It was horrifying. Uh, the other thing, though, too, I think that it does is it really paints Adrian in a terrible light right off the bat. You absolutely feel zero sympathy for this guy. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and mostly, I mean, there's no dialogue here. There's no um, explanation of why he's a garbage person. Uh, just the strict intensity of Cecilia's acting in these opening scenes paints a better picture than any sort of script I think could do. It was wonderful in the worst kind of way. Absolutely. And and I think that it paid off in a, an extremely uh, powerful way too. You know, after all of this intensity and, and her sneaking away and, and you start realizing, oh, he like she drugged him, all that kind of stuff. You know, even then, because the car alarm accidentally gets set off as she is trying to, set her uh dog free from this situation too you know and she makes it out in the woods and she finally gets into her sister's car suddenly he runs up and he punches out the window and you're like oh <laughs> this is the situation we're in like it's this bad Ah, uh, so good just such a, a visceral real horror like that is the the kind of thing that some people really have to go through and that's messed up and it reminded me a lot of some of the scenes of midsummer where you don't need fantastical supernatural creatures to instill panic and fear in your audience sometimes real life is scarier than anything you can make up For um sure. the the other thing that i really appreciated is for I mentioned just a few minutes ago about a third of the movie. You don't know if poor Cecilia is just going through some massive PTSD or if something is actually after her. And we can talk a little bit more when we get to some of the negative things about the movie, but I was into that. Um, it was kind of a mind game for a real big portion of the entire movie. And I, yeah, and I, sure. I wanted more. I wanted more for sure. Yeah, like, that was one one thing that is both, like, a, a positive that it did play with that a little bit, but, I, you know, like you mentioned, I, I, I feel like it really could have done that a lot more and really made the audience question it more, because I feel like there was kind of a thing almost, you know, from the very beginning where you're like, oh, yeah, like, well, of course she knows what she's talking about, um, 
even though we didn't have tons of reason to necessarily believe it yet. Um, but part of what made it work so well was just simply, yeah, the way that they they filmed oh, her. Yes. And, 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 you know, one, they, they, they did a good job of kind of like filming what, like, what she was looking at, the fact that, that she wouldn't get comfortable, you know, just like little things like that were, were really good in showing the kind of her mindset. Um, and then another thing I thought that was really, really effective that, you know, both kind of played into, you know, maybe she has PTSD and then later on into kind of what was happening with the Invisible Man is just the way that it would be showing the action of a scene, you know, her walking around, interacting with uh, her friend or the friend's daughter or whatever, and then the camera would slowly pan away to nothing and then and it, slowly pan back. And I think the, like, the amazing trick behind that kind of a cinematography move is you were expecting a jump scare. Usually in horror movies, mm-hmm. when they pan away creepily... And then they pan back to the main character, and then they pan back. There's something there waiting to scare you. Also, did you appreciate how I paused like I was actually moving a camera? Podcasting is a visual medium. (laughs) Um, But this... Yeah, you really got to heighten it to that art form. (laughs) The the scenes, though, where this was occurring, I, I was expecting there to be something, and there wasn't. And the lack of something, the lack of a jump scare, like, creeped me out more than I think any jump scare could have. It just made it super unsettling. It was awesome. So awesome. And part of also what made it work so well is that sometimes there would be just this tiny bit of movement. You know, you there would be, you know, something would, I don't know, like, like the drapes of the window would get brushed aside ever so slightly. And so sometimes it, like... It, it kind of clued, like, gave you little teeny baby hints of, like, where he is, what he's doing. And other times, it would just be nothing. And so, you would be looking very intently, um, just kind of hunting the scene, you know, almost playing Where's Waldo. But it would oftentimes, yeah, not have anything there. Or if, if there was something, it was just so slight, it could just be, you know, air moving some, something in, in the room or something like that. It, it was really effective... Uh, how it did that um and so when it gave us more direct clues about him being there a little bit later on those were also so much more effective because you're kind of used to not being shown anything and then suddenly when you see his his breath mist up the air behind cecilia it's just that much more effective because you're like oh no he's there he's right there a lot of these different types of scenes for example, when she was in the kitchen and she left, I think it was scrambled eggs on the stove, and then the fire just shot up to high. Um, like, very mm-hmm. poltergeist-like activity. And then there's the terrifying scene where she's sleeping and you start to see camera flashes. And there's just this hovering phone in the air taking pictures. And it's, ugh, it's so unsettling to see it. Yeah, especially because she doesn't wake up from that like basically we're shown that moment of of the invasion of of her privacy and all that but she does she's not even aware of it until much later um and as we mentioned all of this is a really great movement it's culminating into a big reveal and then we get an amazing reveal cecilia goes up to the attic she discovers that adrian is kind of living up there she finds the pictures she finds his phone she starts to feel that maybe he's up there with her so as she's going down the attic she's looking at the stairs and she slyly throws this bucket of paint into what is seems to be thin air. And then you see that the paint is, it hits a person. Um, and you don't really know what to think at that point. I think the, the audience at the time when we saw the movie was very vocal at this point. There was a lot of, oh, 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 shit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was just so good. Because again, up to this point, you really had no idea if she was being followed by a real person or if this was all in her head. And so the reveal, this invisible reveal is just so effective. I loved that scene so much. Yeah. What, what's so interesting about it is that it kind of played like a jump scare, but it 
wasn't a jump scare because it was her being smart. You know, it wasn't just like something jumping out at you. It was that you you hoped that she was wrong for that half a second, but she throws the paint and there he is. And ugh, it just like gets a, such a visceral reaction because you're like, oh no, like he is right, right there. And I think they even could have thrown the paint and he had not been there and it would have been as equally powerful because either way, something's going on with poor Cecilia. <laughs> Yeah, Ugh, it was great. But that point, I mean, there's one other really intense redeeming part of the movie. But that for me was where the movie started to kind of fall apart. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. But we should first probably talk about how awesome Adrian's invisible suit was because it was hella cool. <laughs> I <want> agreed. <laughs> I Yeah, I really liked how the suit looked. Um, I like that they went with a suit instead of, like, a potion, kind of like what we had in the original book. But, you know, instead, yeah, we have this, you know, suit that's just covered with cameras that all can project stuff. So it's just, yeah, it's basically, you know, showing what is behind it, you know, and just kind of showing it from every angle. So it's essentially invisible. And, it, like, it, it looked really good. Um, it looked really creepy, you know, when you see it turned off. Because, yeah, it's just like... A, a zillion eyes looking at you all over a human form and it's just yeah it's it's creepy it's cool it worked really well i'm gonna show my nerd a little bit here and we're all familiar with my nerd but in the anime Yu-Gi-Oh, when maximilian pegasus summons relinquished and it's covered in those creepy eyes <laughs> it reminded me of that <laughs> but also it reminded me it reminded me of a Marvel movie, too, which was pretty fun. Um, so these cameras somehow used camouflage to make him invisible. The science part of me struggled a little bit with this. Uh, I like that they didn't have to go into it and explain how the suit worked. Mm -hmm. I think that helped the movie overall. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, like, I, like I felt what what made it work for the movie was you you see it, you can kind of get some idea of how it works just on a very loose basis, and then it basically just said, "Hey, he is a tech genius uh, who specializes in optics," and so basically, yeah, like we know that he knows more about this than we do, and so we kind of give him the benefit of the doubt, just kind of built into the how it's written. Yeah, and again, I, th I understand why that was necessary, because if you dissect it and think about kind of perception versus sensation and how eyes actually work and how cameras work, it completely falls apart. It makes no sense whatsoever. But also little children crawling downstairs like spiders and spitting pea soup doesn't make sense either. So whatever, mm -hmm. I will just turn science brain off now. <laughs> Power, power down. <laughs> Speaking of powering down, should we talk about the uh, restaurant scene? Holy cow, this scene. This scene is... There are a few scenes, I think, from movies that we've talked about on this podcast that have been as iconic as maybe this scene. There have been some scenes from It, of course, Hereditary, Midsummer, even. But this plot twist, I don't think anyone really saw when we were watching it. Did you see it, Nathaniel, coming? No, or I, I thought something was going to happen, but I didn't think it was going to be that. So Cecilia and her sister have sort of a strained relationship. Um, Adrian wrote her sister this very incriminating email saying that Cecilia doesn't want to do anything with her ever again. Uh, uh, there's a lot of plot. From Cecilia's email and all that. So it yeah. seems like she did it. Essentially, he was trying to ruin her life. So... Cecilia gets really concerned that, and she knows that Adrian is following her, so she asks her sister to come have lunch with her to try and break bread. Um, then, also, she's really in a pickle at that point because she's found the suit. <laughs> really in a pickle is putting it very lightly. <laughs> That's my new favorite phase for any horror movie we watch, where shit is just hitting the fan. They seem to be rather in a pickle. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's full-blown dill. <laughs> full-blown pickle. Anyway. It's a dill-pocalypse. <laughs> dill-pocalypse. I like that new shirt. Much um, better than the coronavirus-pocalypse. 
So Cecilia is talking with her sister, and then all of a sudden you see this knife levitate out of nowhere, out of thin air, slash her sister's throat, and then it jumps back into her hand. And you're just like, what the hell? The man sitting next to me in the audience, like, yelled at top of his lungs, Oh, shit! (laughs) (laughs) And the entire audience at the time we saw the movie was just incredibly unsettled. Nobody saw this coming. Um, It was so well done. The silence of the room that the restaurant was in after her sister's throat was cut... Um, the terror in all of the extras' faces was incredibly powerful. And and honestly, I don't think anyone really saw this coming. coming. It went from, you know, 60 mile an hour scares to 120 in a scene. And it was wild. So good. Yeah. Yeah, it did a really good job of also yeah putting Cecilia in, in a position where yeah, it looks like she's guilty. It looks like, you know, she is totally mentally unhinged. Like it did a lot for this, the story in just yeah one simple action and it worked extremely well. Um, now what they ended up doing with that maybe didn't work quite as well, but the, but like in terms of like believability that suddenly like the police think that she is murdering people and is just off a rocker, totally, totally viable. And I think more importantly is it creates even more sympathy and empathy for Cecilia's situation. Like you as an audience know what's happening. You know that she's not mentally ill, but everyone uh, kind of communicating with her and interacting with her in the movie is treating her like she's mentally ill. And, And it just kind of breaks your heart in a way. And I think the cinematography and and really, Elizabeth Moss as Cecilia, her acting and her visceral reactions to everything that was going on just made your heart bleed in all the wrong places. It was so well done. Is there a right place for one's heart to bleed? Um, yes, but we are not a medical nor biology podcast, so to be continued. <laughs> okay, fair enough. um what is there anything else that you really liked about it nathaniel like i mentioned i think the attic and the restaurant were kind of the the climax of the movie from here on out things start to kind of fall apart for me pun intended because her throat was cut and her head was falling apart get it yeah that's how that works (laughs) okay okay um no i i feel like that kind of covers a lot of the high points for me um so I guess should we jump into some of the negatives then? Let's do it. Okay, so I guess just for starters, I don't feel like the acting was necessarily super consistent uh, throughout the movie. Like I feel like Elizabeth Moss did a, a, a solid job. Um, everyone else was just okay. <laughs> yeah, I think clunky is a good word. Um Cecilia has a friend slash boyfriend slash ex-lover. Not 100% sure what their relationship was, and that was one of my issues with it, is it never really... I think it's just that they're friends. Um, His name was James Lanier. Um, He had a daughter named Sydney. Uh, Their relationship was cute, but there came a point in the movie where Adrian, as the Invisible Man, slapped Sydney... And she blamed it on Cecilia, because clearly she can't see who's slapping her. And a lot of the actions that happened from then on with these two supposed life friends felt very dramatic, very escalated. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know, I felt like a lot of the rational decisions started going out the window at this point. And the acting... The acting didn't help those decisions because it was so clunky. It it made it feel very contrived. And the only reason they were making these decisions was to help push the plot along. Yeah, that that's definitely very true. Um, I I would say, especially like early on with uh, the sister going like, oh, you wrote me this horrible email. And she's like, I didn't write you an email. Yes, you did. And then she just like slams the door on her. You're like. (laughs) 
yeah, there's you don't. If she goes, what email? What are you talking about? Well, and then maybe you stop and go. You know this email. Well, and the sister was supposed to be some very successful lawyer. Like you would think that as a lawyer, you would want more information and allow your sister to explain herself a little bit. I don't know. It felt so awkward at points that you just like okay no yeah. rational human being would really do that you're you don't treat people like that anyway um and it, it came to the point too i think that it almost felt so contrived that it came across as belittling mental illness i mean ptsd is a very real thing trauma is a very real thing it, it makes people act a little bit crazy for lack of a better term you know a lot of rash decisions are made a lot of mm-hmm. actions are done from emotion and not really from logic and so to have these characters in the movie escalate it to the point that they did i don't know it kind of made me cringe a little bit that uh, people yeah. str- struggle with this and we shouldn't really treat it lightly like they they did in the movie yeah, well, it, it either seemed like a very insincere reaction or the reaction of someone who just totally fails to grasp that, uh, you know, Cecilia has a lot of trauma from being severely abused, which she had already opened up to these characters about. So, like, there shouldn't have been any question there. So, yeah, it seems like the reaction should have been, like, let's work through this together, not just like, oh, I'm shutting you, or I'm totally, you know, cutting you off at this point based on one thing that happened that you're not even seem to be fully aware of. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of the quote unquote haunting of Adrian? Um, I, I know we mentioned it earlier in the episode, but really it kind of felt like the carrot was being dangled in a good third of the movie. And then they took the carrot away and you just knew what was going on. How did that hurt the movie instead of help it? Um, I, I feel like the idea that, yeah, maybe Cecilia is just, you know, her, her brain is, is broken from the trauma is something that they could have played up more, uh, especially, yeah, for the first half of the film. Um, like there is certainly a, a point where you are supposed to know that there's the invisible man and he is doing these things to her. But I feel like one, we, we learned that way too early on. And and two, um, it's just one of those things where it's a lot more interesting to to look at it and go like, oh, like maybe this isn't actually happening. Maybe, yeah, you know, just it, it makes it more of an, an immersive experience if we as an audience are not 100 percent certain of what's real and what's not. Because, you know, and, and I think it could have been stronger if if we had some instances where there are things that happen or that Cecilia perceives as happening that aren't Adrian. It's just that, yeah, that, that she is afraid of every shadow, every sound, every little thing. If we saw that a little bit more, like, like we, we had that hint of that, you know, oh, she's having trouble going to the mailbox. Oh, she has trouble. Yeah. Being outside the house. Like we, we get a little bit of that. But I think if, if that was played up, to be a bigger part of the beginning section of the film. Um, it would have paid off more when she ends up being right. And that all the paranoia is true. <laughs> Cause then we actually see her as someone who is paranoid, who maybe it, it warrants questioning her. It, it helps us believe the other characters when they go, I think you're just kind of freaking out over nothing. Um, and like, yeah, like you went through something hard. Like, let's get you some more help. You know, if she was actually like seeing a therapist, if she was doing some things to actually like get help for the real issue that she experienced, um, it would have made the awful things that were happening to her. You know, that, that, that Adrian is still continuing to do awful things to her that much more real, especially because, yeah, we could have understood their relationship more if she was opening up to a, a therapist about it or something like that. I, I, I don't know. Just to me, it was really a missed opportunity because I think it could have turned uh, what was a good horror film into a really, really great one. 
And I think it would have helped a little bit of those contrived plot points feel a little bit mm-hmm. more authentic because you're, you see a little bit more of the raw and the grit of what she went through. So you start to, to kind of empathize with her more. And then, you know, if you see her really trying to work on some of the issues she's struggling with and then failing some of those rash decisions that a lot of her friends were making, would have made a little bit more sense because you're just so tired of trying to fix someone sometimes that you can't and you have to create those harsh boundaries but without that background it felt forced it felt disrespectful to mental illness yeah yeah um for me uh, oh go ahead oh i think just like a perfect example of that is say um you know earlier in the film if we had uh, her friend's daughter come up and just like tap her on the shoulder. If she like turned around and like screamed or and like jumped back, if that had happened earlier, then I think we would have believed a little bit more when she's like, "She hit me! She hit me!" Later on, um, because yeah, people's reactions are fight or flight, and so if we see that still affecting her at that level of intensity, it would make more sense why someone else would. Uh, believe that she had, you know, irrationally hit her. Absolutely. I I really think that was kind of the biggest, uh, the Achilles heel of this movie. Um, the second heel, because we all have two feet, um, was the ending. And, and that's two part. And I'll let you talk about the second aspect of that mm-hmm. because it's kind of the big plot reveal of the entire film, which was not executed very well. But the first thing that I struggled with is I felt like this movie could have ended four times. It was frustrating. And the more I thought about it, the more it kind of made me mad. Um, Cecilia first is in the mental hospital and there's this big altercation with Adrian. You think it's going to end and then it continues and she runs back to her friend's house and you think it's going to end there and then it continues and it does this two or three more times and again it kind of felt like these this climax kind of movement of the movie at this critical part felt very contrived that okay we have to do a then we have to do b then we have to do c and then we have to do d and then we're gonna end with e and by the time you got to e i just didn't care anymore i felt like it had run its course i was looking at my watch a few times and that to me is like the coup de gras for movies if i look at my watch to see how much time has passed it's not a great movie (laughs) um and so i i don't know i i know i always talk about pacing with movies and i just feel like it could have cut maybe two or three of those endings off or presented Uh them a little bit earlier on in the movie and and the the direction and the energy of the movie would have resolved a little bit cleaner does that make sense oh for sure and and like i i agree with that 100 percent because yeah like you said it is this big showdown in the hospital it's really intense people are dying um has some crazy violence and all that and then you have this you know her hiding and you know kind of running and trying to like get him but also hide from him in the rain out in the parking lot and you're like man like that's that's really cool because like you could still see maybe a faint outline of him um but then that just doesn't ever quite pay off and then then yeah suddenly he's off trying to hurt the friend's daughter and you know and so so yeah we have a climax we we see where it should end it doesn't then we have it build back up to another climax, big fight. And then, you know, it's a, a twist reveal. Oh, it was the brother in the in that house. <laughs> dun, dun, dun! Was, yeah, so, so to clarify, Adrian's brother. And he... And, and, you know, so they kill him. And then they find Adrian. And, oh, he was all uh, abused. And, you know, he was actually just a victim of his abusive brother. And... Everything bad that he's ever done was his brother's fault, really. Um, and which, which again didn't is feel... like 
it was such uh, almost an offense to to actual abusers out there who do this stuff in real life and are horrible, horrible people. And then you see this movie and it's just like, oh, it wasn't his fault. It was his twin brothers. Darn those pesky kids. If it wasn't for them, I would have gotten away from it. You know, like, ugh. Yeah, well, and, and I like that, like, it didn't actually, you know, say that that was really what was going on, thankfully. But it, immediately, too many of the characters accepted that as reality, which I hated. But then it, like, kind of, like, acted like it was going into the denouement, and we're going to have everything resolve. And then suddenly, oh, no, no, she's got to have a secret plan to, to get Adrian to admit stuff. And then when he doesn't, then she, you know, p- popped on the suit makes him cut his own throat, then he's dead, walk away, and then we don't have a denouement. And so it's kind of... Hey, Nathaniel, for us common folk, do you maybe want to give a literary explanation of denouement? (laughs) Okay, so denouement. Before we watched, or before we recorded. (laughs) Yes, uh, so for those of you who have not taken an English class in the last few years, uh, denouement (laughs) is a literary term that refers to the falling action in a story. So typically, yeah, you'll have your climactic moment, and then you have... You know, kind of the the falling action, which is you know, kind of the story getting wrapped up, us finding you know, seeing how characters have are changed by whatever, uh, you know, they go back to their house, whatever it is, um, you know. So I'll, I'll give the example of the Hobbit. You know, so we have the Battle of the Five Armies as the climax, and then the Denouement is him returning home. You know, Bilbo going back to the Shire. That's the denouement, and and we get to see him, you know, where he started it out, but it's but he's different now. Uh, and so in this case, you know, we have all of the the story elements, you know, kind of being wrapped up, uh, or you know, pretending to be wrapped up as as you know, oh, it was actually the brother, oh, uh, Adrian, you know, was was trapped, oh, the you know, she's filling out police reports and all of that stuff. You know, her life is starting to go on, and then we have another climax. And so it's just kind of confusing because we're not, uh, we as viewers or readers or, you know, consumers of stories, we're used to having that denouement. Um, and so without it, it, it it's kind of, it, it feels incomplete. We need to see her, you know, We if, if it had that climax and then we had a scene of her living life, feeling good, whatever, then we would feel like the story's wrapped up. But we don't. We have her walk off and be like, yeah, I, yeah, he killed, he, he definitely killed himself. That's what the cameras will show. Wink. Roll credits. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, we just don't feel like the the story gets to have any sort of resolution after that point which i mean i wouldn't be surprised if that was a deliberate choice um but it's still just it, it doesn't feel complete because yeah we had all of these like fake climaxes and so like why not have another one after that and then suddenly i don't know her friend gets his throat slit or something like it, it just at this point like nothing would surprise you exactly and again i think that is is a good summary of how the movie was altogether. It started out phenomenal. It was going on a good trajectory. And then it just kind of started to go downhill. And at the end, you were just a little bit disappointed. And I know everyone won't be. Um, but we're rather well-versed in horror movies. And I just was wanting more. And it, it hurt its score overall for me substantially as far as a good movie goes. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I will say that as a whole, I still enjoyed the movie. I would watch Same. it again. Absolutely. Um, I, I recommend, you know, that our listeners check it out if they uh, haven't already watched it, which, you know, again, sorry about all the spoilers, but not really that sorry. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just one of those things where it it was a good horror movie, but if it had had a little bit tighter writing had a had a little bit more emphasis on the uh, actual like mental illness aspect of it you know the trauma played to those strengths early on and then had a more concise 
tight ending, then I feel like it would be a great horror movie. And I think that's the greatest travesty about the movie is I think for me, I resonated a lot with the kind of underlying theme that the Invisible Man to me represented a lot of past trauma, a lot of past abuse that for individuals who've gone through that, it's not just gone in a day. Once the relationship ends, that trauma persists. And as someone who's gone through a very nasty and traumatic divorce to this day you know i will have these weird triggers or even a dream pop up here and there that really almost haunts you and had the movie creators really dug into that a little bit more and made that more of an emphasis i think it would have resonated a little bit better and have produced a better movie overall and allowed people to kind of have a catharsis with it and kind of this acceptance that trauma always follows you you don't know if it's there or not but you're capable of fighting it when the time comes yeah and, and it lost that um and i think the the multiple endings and this denouement all kind of shattered that potential it was that it, there was this underlying theme and they kind of lost the plot of that theme just at the end and and that's a shame because it is a, a overall a very strong piece that just could have been that much stronger. Important question for you. Are Absolutely. you excited that it's going to have a sequel? Ugh, I didn't even know that. They have announced that there's going to be a sequel, The Invisible Woman, and it is being directed by uh, the actress who played Cecilia, Elizabeth Moss. Hmm, I'm going to have to sit with that information a little bit to decide how I feel. I did not know yeah, that until I don't... this very moment. Yeah, I just discovered it like 20 minutes ago. So it, I, I think it <laughs> could be good, but you know, it, I don't know. I could see that going either way. More importantly, okay. Nathaniel, what would you do if you're invisible for one day? <laughs> hmm. Travel for free. All right. Sneak up on a plane. Nathaniel on a plane. Mm-hmm. Person on a plane. I love it. I would probably, I would probably sneak into my job's executive meetings and make sure that they're not talking about me because that's what anxiety does to you. <laughs> Every meeting is You're always letting about anxiety you. win. I know. Shut up. What would you give this movie as far as screams go? Uh, screams? I'm going to give it a four. It wasn't that scary, but there were those really strong moments. I would give it a five. I really loved the attic scene. I thought it was very original. And that restaurant scene, again, I think it's going to go down as a modern, iconic horror moment for our generation. Absolutely. Um, And what do you give it as Crowns? Crowns, I give it a six. Um, Great movie. Go see it. Enjoy it. It's very powerful, very gritty. There's a lot of you know, pretty intense gore. But as we've discussed, I think there was a lot of potential to really connect with people on a very visceral level. And it failed to do that. Yeah, um, I'm going to give it... I I, I was going to go six as well. I decided it was probably more of a high six, so I rounded it up to a seven. It's one of those... It's... Uh, there's just so much potential. Like, it was good. I enjoyed it. But it could have just been next level, which is just such a shame. But anyway, should we launch into the Occult Corner? Yes. And this Occult Corner is a little kind of off topic in a sense. Um, But not really? Yeah, but at the same time, it is kind of on topic. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've definitely word vomited all over every one of our listeners and we apologize for that um sorry not sorry which seems to be the theme of this episode Um, i mean you know if they're into word vomit maybe i don't don't know i don't know their kinks all right you do you no judgment um i wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between ghosts and poltergeists um as we mentioned multiple times the beginning of this movie is very similar to kind of a haunted house 
Esque type of a movie, very haunting oriented. However, there's actually quite a bit of differentiation between ghosts. Ghosts is a very broad term that encompasses quite a bit of different kind of paranormal entities. And a lot of the times when you encounter haunting, uh, you, you typically experience a poltergeist, which is very different from a ghost, but at the same time is very similar. Um, so ghost, the term ghost comes from an old English word geist um, or ghast, uh, which is essentially just someone who has died and the spirit has moved on. So then, I mean, that's a huge term for a lot of different things. Poltergeist itself is from a German word, actually. Geist at the end of poltergeist comes from this old English word, but polter is um, rooted in some Germanic origins about sound or ruckus or noise. So, so poltergeist by word association is a noisy ghost. And the term ghost we could have an entire episode about, um, which I won't do. <laughs> I could go on for another 45 minutes about ghosts and uh, all the many different cultures that we have and how they believe in the, the spirits and the afterlife. Uh, but for the sake of... We'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, to be continued. Uh, but I did want to talk a little bit about poltergeists. Um, a lot of people think they're kind of these angry spirits that have latched on to some sort of geography or a house or even certain people. And they... Or a Hogwarts could, castle. Or Hogwarts castle. Peeves is probably Looking at the you, most, Peeves. <laughs> the most famous of all poltergeists, other than the Einfield poltergeist. Um, which, let's be honest, they were probably lovers. They're made for each other. Um, there we go. <laughs> Bale. Uh, <laughs> Bill and Peeves. Bill and Peeves. Um, poltergeist, again, loud, noisy ghosts. You usually see in these type of hauntings... Furniture falling over, or knickknacks being thrown across the room, or windows shattering. I mean, there's a whole array of different things that could happen in poltergeist hauntings. Um, what I more wanted to talk about was some of the actual theories that go behind what is causing these poltergeist activities, because it's quite fascinating. Um, there's been actually quite a bit of scientific research on a lot of these hauntings and you know, the hard science community absolutely does not believe in what they can't see or, like, describe. So they've actually categorized poltergeist hauntings being the result of weird seismic activity going on underneath the house, which can result into weird water activity happening in your house's pipes, which then cause things to fly off shelves and cabinets to open unexpectedly and whatnot um they so all it's like uh like electronic activity in the air it could be all sorts of stuff that um i read one article about air pressure differences that if the air pressure is more intense on the outside of your house than the inside that anytime you open a door it can create these huge like currents of air which will throw things off the shelf which Again, I have to reboot my science mind. Makes some sense. Um, but a lot of the hauntings that we see are probably more explained by people wanting to make money. Uh, a good haunting story always brings a good dollar bill with it. Um, also, the biggest explanation for poltergeists is children. That parents just don't see their children doing dumb stuff. And they equate it with a ghost, which is something we saw in the Einfield haunting. Uh, it, it could be debated that the children there were, were the cause of a lot of stuff. Um, but to play devil's advocate, of course, you could have an actual spirit who's upset or angry that there are people living in the location that they are bound to. Um, a lot of times you see poltergeists attacking people as well. Uh, so you're not, you don't have a haunted house. You have a haunted person. So if that person moves from place to place, the hauntings will still occur, uh, which is a very interesting idea. And I, I think we need to see some more horror movies that are like that. I know there are a few out there like insidious and, and even Annabelle to some extent, uh, although those are both mostly demonic, not really poltergeist. 
Um, the, the movie Poltergeist, I guess I should say, is a movie about poltergeists. <laughs> Uh, so there you go. It, and there's, it's a, well, I guess four Poltergeist movies. <laughs> fair. Um, a very spark note version about the differences between ghosts and poltergeists, and then a little bit more of a breakdown of what poltergeists are and what they do and how they misbehave. Those silly little rascals. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Luigi's Mansion 3. Um, great game. Fantastic game. Who doesn't Jealous. like sucking up Jealous. ghosts? You can borrow it after, Nathaniel. Um, I showed my daughter Good. this game, and we created a vacuum out of toilet paper cleaners and uh, plastic bags and a backpack, and we went on a ghost hunt over the weekend, and it was magical. Um, but the ghost. By vacuum, found... you mean a poltergust. <laughs> a poltergust. Uh, all those ghosts, though, in Luigi's Mansion are definitely poltergeists. So, if you haven't played it, go play it because yep. it's a great game. We need to talk more about horror-themed video games on this on this show. Yep. All right, Nathaniel, how and... are you staying spooky? Well, I am staying so spooky right now by reading a really delightfully creepy book. It is a uh, horror novel uh, that came out, I believe, last year. It's called A Cosmology of Monsters, which, uh, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. Um, Yeah, where is this book and why have I not read it yet? And why is it not on my doorstep, you jerk? (laughs) Well, I'm getting it from the library, so... Oh, and the libraries okay. are all closed because of Corona. <laughs> Continue. Um, but yeah, it is a book about a family that uh, makes their own haunted house. And then a bunch of other stuff. Like, So it, it, it's a really good blend of kind of like real life horrors uh, along with very, you know, some, some supernatural horrors as well. Uh, I'm not far enough into it to say much more about the plot than that but i really am enjoying it a great deal i love the way that it's written and i'll definitely have to report back in the future about what i end up uh, deciding about how i feel about it as a whole but so far it's real good for me i i was recently in georgia in the middle of nowhere georgia for a work assignment and in order to get to the location i needed to be at I had a two and a half hour drive, which usually means a lot of podcasts. Um, I found one episode from a fellow horror podcast, and we got to get them a huge shout out. They're wonderful, wonderful gentlemen. The folks at Astonishing Legends interviewed uh, a gentleman by the name of Terry Lovelace. Uh, He used to be an Air Force medic and EMT. And on this episode, they talk about the abduction of Devil's Den, is what it's called. And it's Terry Lovelace's story about being abducted and this uh, alien sighting in the middle of the desert. And his story is deeply compelling. And a lot of the facts are, are very, I don't know, almost too authentic not to believe a lot of stuff with the government and where he was a U.S. medic and EMT for the Air Force, you you have the sense of you you have to believe him because he was in the Air Force and he's not just like some guy who lives in a van down by the river. <laughs> he's a very credentialed individual. And so the story that he tells is is very detailed and very compelling and very scary. I was listening to it at like 6 a.m. in the morning in a very foggy backwoods Georgia town, and it got under my skin, but I was also fascinated with it at the same time. Uh, It really sparked an alien abduction interest in me, and I've kind of gone balls to the wall about soaking up anything I can about alien abduction. So uh, definitely take a listen to it. It's a long episode. I believe it's about four hours. Um, but again, the name of the podcast is Astonishing Legends, and the episode is Abduction at Devil's Den, episode 155. Uh, they do great work. I, it would be awesome to have them on this show. 
Heck yeah, I will definitely check that out because that sounds super dope. It's spooky. I had our number one fan, Kiara, listen to it and she ate it up and has shown it to all of the people she cares about because it's so good. What she did? I am shocked. I know. Anyway, I hope everyone listening is staying safe, stay healthy, social distance yourself from everyone. I know it's kind of a crazy time right now with the coronavirus out there. Be smart. Don't be stupid. Everyone's going to be okay. We should probably do Contagion or Cabin Fever or 28 Days Later on our next episode. No, man. Quarantine. Quarantine. (laughs) By that, I mean Wreck, the original quarantine. (laughs) Definitely. So stay spooky, everyone. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ScreamKingsPod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You could also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash ScreamKings. Stay spooky.